Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. Hey, we're back. I got no rap, but I'm here to attack. Uh, yeah, sorry, I'm not in the studio this week, um, but we've got a great guest for you, Nathaniel Whittemore, also known as NLW from the Breakdown and the AI Breakdown pods. Um, we're going to talk to uh, Nathaniel about a range of stuff, AI and crypto, China's resurgence in the crypto world, um, the crazy divergence in politics and major shifts happening in our world with NLW. He's been covering crypto for five years every single day. Um, it's a great interview. We'll, of course, also check in with our good friend Bimnet of BB on markets and macro. But before we get to all of that, I need to remind you to please refer to the link to the disclaimer in the podcast notes and note that none of the information contained in this podcast represents investment advice or an offer recommendation or solicitation by Galaxy Digital or any of its affiliates to buy or sell any securities. Let's hop right into the show. Let's go now to our friend Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Trading. Bimnet, as always, great to see you. How are you doing? Doing great. Thanks for having me. So um, I don't know. I mean, gosh, I feel like I, I saw Bitcoin volatility is back to almost that pre-FTX lows, uh, realized volatility. Not a lot happening uh, in markets. The debt ceiling, we saw a little bit of a pump over the weekend when it was announced that the debt ceiling, there was maybe a deal. But, you know, equities heavy, crypto now trading heavy, but, you know, still sort of in the same range. What is happening in markets, if anything, right now? Um, the main focus uh, is is still on the debt ceiling, like without a, a debt ceiling resolution formally getting passed through both uh, chambers of Congress and and getting signed by the president. It's still the the, the biggest priority for markets because a default um, would ultimately be catastrophic. So that's the number one focus. The number two focus is uh, on the Fed meeting. Um, you know, on on, on June fifteenth, uh, you have about uh, a. 50 to 50% probability uh, baked in for a hike in, in the June meeting and 100% probability of, of a hike uh, baked in f- for the July meeting. So the market is, is definitely focused on, on front end pricing here in the US. Uh, the recent run of data has been incredibly hot um, w- with a handful of exceptions. But the broad trend is that core inflation is still persistently high. And the factors that go into determining that, that core inflation um, suggest that it's going to you know remain tight. And so the, the Fed is left with no choice but to continue hiking the, in, in the front end. And so now the question that the market is, is trying to figure out is, one, how many more hikes are, are potentially possible? Um, today, Larry Fink said that, um, you know, we could see another two to four hikes. Um, last week, we had a couple of Fed members saying you could see another uh, two hikes. Um, and so, you know, I think you, you probably have at least another two hikes in the cards. Um, in addition, there's still significant rate cut pricing, uh, mainly in, um, you know, 2024. Um, and so the market can, you know, take out that pricing and assume that the Fed is going to be forced to stay higher for, for longer um, over that period. Um, in addition, I think the other thing of note is, is sort of the international central bank backdrop. Um, you have, uh, you know, significant inflation in the UK and, and their latest prints have not um, been any better. And so, you know, the BOE is expected to hike the, the, their next two meetings. Same thing with, with the ECB. We just had a hot Australian CPI print last night. Um, you know, Japan, you know, they're still pondering the, the end of yield curve control. And now there's chatter about, you know, currency intervention. Um, and then fourthly, um, we are seeing certain pockets of, of weakening sort of activity, particularly in China and Germany. These are two huge industrial complex uh, nations. 
And you know they they are markets that 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 are continuing to to struggle. Like you know, look at the Hang Seng recently. You know, uh, underperforming by, by a lot. Like Chinese industrials, Chinese tech names have have come off a lot. Um, basically, you know, you in, in China, you know, there's a lot of hope surrounding that they're reopening, and that it just has has sort of fizzled out. Um, just because you know, I think historically a lot of the, the their economy has been based on you know their property market and and investments. And so, you know, at this point um, in, in the cycle, there's just a lot less investment and, you know, the, the housing market isn't w- like what, what it once was because, you know, I do believe that uh, a lot of the historical activity has been driven by, you know, private, you know, real estate um, agents in, in, in China. And given sort of the recent collapse you've had in home pricing, um, you know, I think people remember like Evergrande, et cetera, you know, there, there's less appetite there. And so, you know, China is a, it's a market that's continuing to struggle, and you're seeing that reflected in their currency, which is you know breaking out. You know, through seven, I think it's at seven eleven right now, and looking like it's about to make new trend highs. And and so you know, and then Germany's in a recession, so it, it's a, a a battle of um, this is a market that's torn between you know a bunch of central banks that want to hike because you know inflation is is really strong. And po- like pretty s- notable pockets of of, of weakness in, in in the global economy, um, so it's a it's a pretty in- interesting dynamic at the moment. Yeah, and do we still see like um, you know bond investors had been diverting strongly from what the Fed had been saying? Right, we saw mm-hmm. that the, the inversion was suggesting like an imminent recession and 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 thus possibly cuts, but. Now it, it really does feel like higher for longer is still in the cards. I mean, is that dynamic still at play with the disparity between the two? So so that level of inversion in the front end, talking about, you know, call it overnight yeah. versus the 12 month point or the 18 month point has normalized pretty significantly. I see. Um, and but however, like if you look at, you know, a curve like twos fives or, or twos tens, those curves are still at historically um, inverted levels. Um, and they suggest that, you know, based on historicals that, you know, something meaningful is about to happen in, in, in the economy. And just, you know, the other kind of point that folks look at is just like the three month, you know, rate versus tenure. And that is, uh, you know, <laughs> insanely inverted. Right. I mean, I think, yeah, uh, it's uh, one, it makes it makes owning fixed income incredibly difficult from a carry perspective and from an opportunity cost perspective. Most funding or leverage that is used to, to buy treasuries funds in overnight or or the three month point. And so when you're talking about almost 200 basis points of negative carry, it makes it really tough to be long um, that that long end duration. In addition, it's just like, wait, why wouldn't I take less duration risk and, you know, park again, an extra 200 basis points. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah. And then honestly, uh, th- there's one big thing that, that I didn't touch uh, earlier that, you know, I'd like to just quickly go back to, um, the, the resolution of the debt ceiling and, and what that means for markets. Like once that actually goes through, um, there's an important, um, sort of component to it, which is, like this, the treasury supply that's going to hit the market after they they approve the bill. Um, essentially, the, the government is going to need to raise a trillion dollars uh, of, of funding via treasury sales. Six to seven hundred billion dollars of that is going to come from from T bills, uh, and I'll, so that means that the market is going to have to buy you know six hundred to seven hundred billion dollars T bills and another three hundred million dollars in, in, in three hundred billion dollars in, in in other paper, and that's going to 
drain reserves from the market and it might be draining um, from from banks that aren't in in such good situations and so uh you know that's definitely something sort of very notable that 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 you know i think market participants are are, are watching closely wow um yeah it's going to be cra- crazy to see how this goes down i mean i've been following the politics of the debt ceiling and um you know it seems like a tough sell for both sides right now to their uh, to their constituencies hopefully we get some kind of totally bipartisan where the fringes vote against, but the strong middle comes through and gets something done sooner rather than later. Um, I hate to sound like a broken record, but I think this is great for for Bitcoin. I mean, it basically is like, hey, we're the government. We're going to spend as much money as possible uh, up until the, this deadline, and then we'll figure I out. I mean, they're haggling. That. If you do the arithmetic on long-term fiscal situation oh, in America, so it's, it, it's so ugly, and it's basically impossible to do the math and have it work out without... <laughs> Without either massive tax increases or massive government no, spending cuts it, in the in, you know over the next 20, 30 years, but they're and then not you have our people feasible. in Washington. I mean, I know, but then you have our people in Washington haggling over you know like one or two percent, right? And like I that's know, where the and it's just if you think about it, I mean, Stan Druckenmiller. I encourage people to listen to his speech at uh, the University of Southern California on May third. It's it's depressing. Um, yeah, but I mean, he just lays out the the simple arithmetic of things like financing the debt over the next ten to. 20 years and the cost of entitlements and the other spending and it just doesn't add up so it's it literally can't add up so it does not um, yeah and then we're haggling over you know freeze what are we talking about freezing fiscal spending at like this year's rate until for next year like that's (laughs) that's the debate right now so yeah it seems very out of touch honestly the the situation Um, i agree in terms of bitcoin fundamentally speaking makes a lot of sense in an environment like that uh it's it's i mean long run the only solution is to continue to to, to finance the debt via the Federal Reserve. Like the Federal Reserve yeah. will eventually go back to QE. It's not, uh, you know, a if, but a, a matter of, of when. So anything else uh, just in your mind uh, as you look at you know, markets or crypto markets this week uh, to share uh, that, that, you know, how, how, and we've talked about, I mean, Bitcoin. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I would be remiss to, to not mention that, you know, the biggest sort of attention driver in markets over the past week has has been ai and ai yeah. games and we've had you know several companies um you know right report ai uh, revenues related to ai businesses ai Chip makers yes. big tech I yeah mean, it's, it's all about ai and you know i think that's where a lot of speculative money is is going towards right now you know some of the valuations and the, the names are um you know i would they're say high. they're high they're high. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of the performance in, in equity markets this year are, are driven by, you know, a handful of, you know, five to six, six names. And so, you know, it's it's a market that, you know, has lost a lot of breath and, you know, is, is driven by one thing right now, and that's speculation around <laughs> AI. And so uh, it does feel a little bubble-esque um, and a handful of names at least. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I, I think that's a, an important story to watch. And obviously, you know, there, there are certain plays in, in crypto as well that, um, you know, are, are, are receiving, you know, positive attention because of their association, you know, with AI. You know, I think right. if you look at, you know, some some of the the AI tokens, you know, th- those have been the best performing tokens over the past couple of weeks. And yep. as long as the sort of AI narrative uh, in broader markets continues, you know, I don't. I, I would expect that you know the, the crypto AI stuff to, to be well supported as well. Uh, that's great, Bimnet Abibi. As always, our friend from Galaxy Trading. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Thanks for having me.
Let's go now to our guest, Nathaniel Whittemore, also known as NLW by many and host of The Breakdown. Uh, Nathaniel, great to see you. Yeah, it's awesome to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you on my podcast. I've been on your podcast. Uh, I think when I was on there, it was uh, the end of 2021. The title of the episode was The Inst- the Year of Institutional Bitcoin. Yeah, um, you know, sounds right. That's a, yeah, that was a long time ago. That was over, uh, it was about a, a year and, you know, uh, a quarter ago that we did that. Before we start, let's start this. I feel like something, you know, for our listeners who don't know uh, Nathaniel, he's been covering crypto basically every day uh, for five plus years in one form or another. So he, he's someone I really wanted to check in t- with to sort of gauge where we are in these in the cycles of crypto. And maybe that's a good marker. We called that the institutional year of year of institutional Bitcoin 2021. What what is uh, what does it feel like today? What is this year? Does, does it feel like the institutional uh Bitcoin year? Well, I, I think there's, there's 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 two things. Is it, what what is does it feel like the institutional year of Bitcoin, and 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 what does it feel like if not that? Um, I think we could have a whole conversation about the resilience of or the comparative resilience of institutional interest in Bitcoin and crypto post FTX collapse and all these things. I think I actually think that there has been it's been way less bad than it could have been from a corporate standpoint. Uh, obviously, that's not the case for for a, a governmental kind of narrative or a regulatory narrative. Um, you know, I, one of the things that makes this moment the most interesting is that we are in a very, very sort of short-term up-for-grabs period when it comes to crypto narratives, Bitcoin narratives, uh, you know, where we even where we are in the cycle. Um, you know, and I think that to some extent, there is you know, the cyclical piece of this, you know, we're about a year out from the halving. That's always the time where, you know, there starts to be jockeying for narratives and what it's going to be and what the next catalysts are. Uh, but at the same time, there have been a bunch of sort of unexpected things that have happened this year that I think have helped shape that. And I, I don't think that it's it's clear, again, and I'm just talking about short term, uh, mm-hmm, you know, versus, mm-hmm. versus kind of long term narratives. I don't think it's exactly clear how broadly speaking people are you know people outside the crypto industry specifically are are looking in at the space other than just kind of ignoring it but you know we can we can get into all that you know i don't i don't see that many people exiting let me start start with that way of the of the institutional whether that's the institutional finance um that you know they you know, the famous one was like goldman sachs right there was in 2017 they had a desk uh, there was that video they put out with the guy that had the ponytail that was like their head of crypto i forget the guy's name and then then they closed the desk and then like 2020, they like they reopened the desk, right? And I haven't heard that they've closed it this time. And I think for the most part, um, that's it, it's sort of like a you're either holding fast or um, or or you know still planning to get in. I haven't heard tons of like you know what we thought it was a good idea. Our team wrote a great paper explaining why you know crypto is really powerful. But now we're just doing now we're, now we're backing out completely. I haven't heard a lot of that. Yeah, I, I was calling it so last year up until the point at which FTX collapsed, I was calling it post narrative institutionalization because if you actually looked across the course of 2022, there were a fair number of uh, a big institutional players who were not just not exiting but actively and quietly, you know, but not silently building out infrastructure, presumably for when the next sort of bull run happened, right? There was a presumption that there would be another, uh, you know, a bull run and, and, and you know, the BlackRock being a, a great example of a, of a firm that was, you know, really sort of um, cl- clearly making moves to, to build out its capacity in this space, but there are plenty of others. Now, once FTX and that, uh, you know, tornado hit, 
it went from quiet sort of post-narrative institutionalization to, you know, really not seeing any announcements. But to your point, you still haven't seen big exits with the exception of specific sort of, uh, you know, investors in FTX, the pension funds and, and people like that, um, not just FTX, but I think more, more them than others, who, who maybe did decide to take a step back uh, and decided that sort of maybe crypto wasn't for them from an institution, you know, from, from an investment profile standpoint, um, which I think is obviously a little bit more understandable than just sort of a, some kind of narrative mass, mass exodus that we, that we haven't seen. So uh, you mentioned that, you, you know, we're in agreement, I think, that a lot of people are still building. We could talk about Fidelity, Franklin Templeton, um, and many others that, that I, we've actually heard new headlines from this year. Um, or since FTX, you also mentioned the some of the some people who have apparently left, um, like the investors in FTX. I think there was also some in BlockFi and Celsius, uh, big pensions and stuff yep. who've gotten burned. I even saw a, a story today. I think it was Temasek, uh, which is yep. in Singapore. What are they? They uh, the the executives and investors responsible for their FTX investment are taking a pay cut. Yep. Yeah. They basically. I think that the. After an inquiry, they said that their investors weren't at fault or anything like that, but as sort of a face saving or whatever, right? They they were taking a yeah. pay cut and kind of recognition that, sure, even if they, you know it wasn't their fault that they got caught in fraud, they didn't make a mistake, and so that was their sort of way of dealing with it. And it, it sounded more broadly though that Temasek was just like you know going to take a big step back from from crypto, and they've been a fairly significant fund force in, in the space. So I think that one's that one's bigger than, for example, like the Ontario you know teachers pension fund or. or whatever, I think from the standpoint of just how active they've been. Yeah, you're totally right. Um, so, okay. So it's not the year of complete pullback. It, it was a stagnation period for sure. I saw remember after FTX, we sort of bottomed out in Bitcoin around 16.5. That's where we started the year. Everything was frozen, right? <laughs> There's almost no deals getting done. You know, I, lo- I like listening to Nick Carter and Matt Walsh's show on the brink. They they read out the deals every week, and there were several weeks with like almost no venture deals announced. Right, so everything gets sort of frozen. Then we go on this big run in January, and and then later in March with SVB, we were talking about and, and the banking crisis. What what was your take on that? I mean, I think a lot of people, specifically the banking crisis and its relation to you know the sort of mini bull run that we saw in Bitcoin. Is this in your mind, a lot of people, including myself, were saying, you know, that it's it's a catalyst. It's not necessarily causation, but a lot of people view Bitcoin as a hedge against the banks. Um, you know, has, a has that. What was your take on that narrative at the time, and and has that narrative run its course in your mind? So, a couple things. The uh, whenever you're looking at narrative alignments with specific financial moves in the short term, there is almost always some market structure dimension of it that's lurking as well. So Binance was offloading its BUSD-based protection fund or whatever they called it, you know, the billion-dollar fund um, uh, because, you know, they they said they wanted to move it into Bitcoin, ETH and other sort of, you know, crypto native assets, but it was because, you know, BUSD was effectively dead in the water at that point because of U.S. regulatory action and blah, 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 blah. And so they telegraphed this move very aggressively and loudly. They said, we are about to start moving, you know, a billion dollars of, 
uh, uh, you know, our our money that was in this stablecoin into Bitcoin. And obviously, people that you know, the intention was clearly to sort of allow people to to front run that potentially, or you know, whatever. Like uh, CZ's not out here making mistakes. Let's put it that way when it comes to yeah. what he's trying to do. Um, and that happened right before. I'm talking right before Silicon Valley Bank happened. And so this little tiny gem, and I have no idea. But there, there's other things that could be attributable to it as well of just starting out of that move up got caught in this narrative maelstrom around the banks and that it, what what happened is that it sort of hit all at once and all of a sudden it wasn't just the coin desks and the blocks of the world that were writing the this is what bitcoin was made for story it was every mainstream outlet now i'm not sure to what extent that brought more people in in the short term as sort of buyers or whether it made people kind of increase their DCA or anything like that. I think that the bigger impact of that in the long term will be that you got to think that a lot of people were watching that happen at that time. Bitcoin surging as banks fail. They were reading the Yahoo Finance article or the Bloomberg article or, you know, or the, the, the USA Today article or whatever, right? The even more mainstream sources about that. And it's now filed away in their back of their brain. Bitcoin went up when banks went down. And maybe they didn't move on that now. But, you know, the next time there is a broader sort of more sustained catalyst, they're going to have that in mind. So when it comes to has that narrative run its course, I'm not totally sure that it was ever sort of the thing that was driving short-term price. I actually think it's almost on narrative layaway for the next time there there is a bull run. People are going to remember that. I love that. Yeah, it definitely happened. Um, yeah. Whether or not that's why it happened exactly, you're totally right. Um, that That is really interesting. It sort of lays the groundwork for a future. It, it solidifies that story, right? Chancellor on the brink of second bailout for banks. And here was the you know American Secretary Treasury uh, or, uh, of the Treasury, not our Chancellor, right? But, but essentially... Right, BTFP, and, and essentially wink and nod, backstopping the entire banking system, and meanwhile, Bitcoin rising a lot, right? I yep. mean, a lot, a lot. Um, and then, of course, you mentioned the having. We have that next year. We expect, uh, well, it will happen sometime, probably April or May of next year. Um, the last having occurred right when, uh, right after COVID, <laughs> and mm-hmm. I think it was May 2020, uh, was the third having, and um, that was right when Paul Tudor Jones wrote his. Uh, fastest horse thesis, you know, if, if gold does well, Bitcoin should do well and and, and do better. Um, it did, by the way, do better than gold. Um, and it also will come right before a presidential election when we have multiple candidates now um, talking about Bitcoin and digital assets. Have, have you seen those? You saw RFK Jr. and Vivek uh, Ramaswamy mm-hmm. uh, talk about it. Um, you know, how important is that or how different? I mean, I don't we've never heard a presidential candidate, I think, ever address Bitcoin ever. As a candidate, obviously, we had Trump say he doesn't like I'm no fan of Bitcoin and digital assets when he was president. And we've seen what uh, President Biden has to say about it. But and the campaign trail is a bit different. It's it's massively different. And and I think the thing that we sometimes underestimate is the extent to which, um, look, pe- people are smart and people don't have to be bought into everything to have a general sense of unease about how things are going to you know not be super trustful of institutions as they are to have some big questions whether they're coming from their left vantage or their right vantage and to recognize that a, a thing that's not subject to the same forces could be valuable right I, I think that when it comes to Bitcoin in particular we we dramatically underestimate or, or we overestimate how much people have to be bought into all the details versus just kind of it intuitively making sense and that's why I think this was a powerful moment this time around uh, because 
because it, it just hit that that very intuitive thing. It's like, yeah, it does feel a little weird out there. Maybe the thing that's not connected to the out there is the thing that, you know, just have a little bit of, right? I think I, I think it's a pretty powerful moment. Yeah, I agree. Outside money or, or in public blockchains as a neutral, uh, you know, co- uh, contradiction here to this, you know, what some people are calling the unit party. I mean, I know that's what um, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. refers to it as, but um, it does feel like an incredibly tumultuous and um, and divided time in America. I mean, even more, I remember, you know, during the, the Bush administration, how divided the country was on, say, the Iraq war. Um, but this, even then, I felt like they could get together the two sides and get something important for the country done. Now you look in Congress and, and you just see, you know, a, a just incredible division do you think that, and I was, maybe this is a segue too, because it's at, it's also at a time of incredible technological upheaval. You know, we've been seeing a lot about artificial intelligence, you know, whether or not it's from politicians or from machines, you know, what's your, how, how do you, how important do you think it's going to be able to be in the future to really know truth or know the provenance of something as being accurate, um, you know, compared to today? Is it, I mean, I know it's already important today, but how does AI picture in here or also just truthiness, you know, in Stephen yeah. Colbert's terms? So I think that there's, if, if we zoom up in terms of the shift that we're all living through, you have, um, so if you look at, uh, there's there's a there's sort of a, a, a shift that's happened in terms of, um, uh, us living in a post-consensus world. So, I, you know, I had this guy, John Esconis, on the show. Uh, I heard him on uh, Dimitri Kofinas' show, Hidden Forces First. And he's been writing this series of essays about the post-consensus reality world that we live in. And effectively, his thesis is that ever since the beginning of the internet, it's not just social media that he tracks it to, but ever since the beginning of the internet, we've lived in a world where uh, individual groups or different groups could sort of lay claim to their own truth that was separate and distinct from from other groups' truth. And the internet both allows you to find those groups of people and to associate with them, as well as to create context for those different kind of competing truths to clash against one another. Uh, and we, we see this in politics most dramatically, but it's in lots and lots of different things. And I think, you know, you can see it around the discourses around, you know, I mean, everything right at this point. And the fascinating thing when you dig into this with John is his, he's much less bleak on it than I think a lot of our instinct is to be. And for him, what's clear is just that we have not yet developed institutions that match this post-consensus reality, that, that are equipped to handle multiple kind of competing truths. And, you know, he, I, I haven't seen him yet. He's in the middle of a whole series, so maybe he gets into this in the future. I haven't seen him articulate yet what he thinks those sort of institutions look like. Uh, and it may not just be institutions. It may be different ways of being, right, where we just get comfortable with the idea that just because there are different source, uh, types of truth, we don't have to always have them competing with one another or whatever, right? Um, the point being, though, that there is this, this huge shift happening that is just absolutely undeniable that sort of eats everything in, in its wake a little bit. And, and we're living in the tension between whatever it 
is and becomes. And this sort of historical accident that we lived in for, you know, for the past 60 years or 80 years post-World War II, where there could be a consensus truth because media was both mass, but it was also highly controlled. Um, and so we're, we're kind of sloughing off this, this, this old world and, you know, emerging very painfully in our sort of teenage years of, of this new world. And I, I think that we are just starting now to get a preview of, of, of how dramatic some of those challenges are, are going to be. Uh, you know, I, I Every time, every every couple of years, you look back at the things that we were arguing about a couple of years before that, and it seems quaint almost. You yeah. know, um, I, I think maybe to wrap up the the Bitcoin thought before talking about sort of AI and sources of truth, I do think it's pretty notable that. So one, you've had you've had a, a, a sort of a, a evolution of presidential or you know or, or hopeful presidential statements on Bitcoin from the one that you pointed out in 2019 from from uh, then President Trump. Mm -hmm. I'm no fan of Bitcoin and blah blah blah. It was all just a pretense to get to the fact that they didn't they really didn't like Libra. Um, mm -hmm. You know, most most people thought that it was basically Steven Mnuchin talking through through Trump, even if he didn't exactly write it. Uh, up to then, you know, mo moving forward. When it came to President Biden, initially there was sort of this very neutral tone. You know, there's sort of the executive order was very, uh, you know, let's go study things and see what comes out. And obviously that shifted rather dramatically over the last six months. Although I think you know, we could have a whole conversation about to what extent that comes from conviction uh, across the Democratic Party and the White House versus just the people like people not being willing to have a fight with the people who are extra angry at crypto post FTX. So those voices being yeah. the loudest, um, which yeah. is kind of more what I, more what I think it is. So you, you have, you have that evolution, right? Into uh, a, a, a very emergent campaign environment in which both of the sort of dark horse, uh, you know, a, a outside force candidates on the right and the left are, you know, down in Miami speaking at the Bitcoin conference and then the biggest challenger to Trump on during, you know, during the announcement of his campaign on Twitter with Elon Musk talks extensively about Bitcoin and why it needs to be uh, preserved and the right to do that needs to be preserved. And, you know, I, I don't know if the political calculus of deciding to make, you know, CBDCs and Bitcoin an issue is, is the right one. But I do think it's notable that it's it's happening. It's happening more positively than not. The only politicians that we've seen who have decided so far in this election cycle to make antagonism to crypto uh, a, a campaign platform is Elizabeth Warren, right? Who, who used it as sort of her part of announcement, which is almost inevitable. I mean, I think that one little piece of the you know psychodrama that is the next election will be a bit of a referendum on whether this is a w whether certain parts of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party are correct in their assumption that crypto or being antagonistic towards crypto is a good policy. My guess uh, is that they are slightly misreading increased Twitter engagement. Uh, as a m indicator that it's a good policy, when actually what that reflects is that the Bitcoin and crypto Twitter community punched so far above its weight class in terms of actual engagement. I mean, I, I, you have to think that the ratio of tweets and loudness among our little corner of the world relative to the number of people participating 
is is just higher than any other community. And now being in the yeah. AI space a little bit more, I certainly think it's true. AI, you know, AI is all everyone is talking about all the time. Well, hold on, let's go into AI yeah. in one second because yeah. I, you said a lot of really interesting stuff there. I just on the last point, I actually saw there was I think it was in a Financial Times article maybe a couple of weeks ago. They said the only two discernible communities that have seen engagement and and usage on Twitter grow since Elon Musk purchased it was adult content and cryptocurrencies. <laughs> so you're you're totally right that we're batting above our our, our weight class online. I also I think I like your point a lot that it will be a referendum. I think it, it I think it, even a little bit more broadly, it'll be a referendum on whether crypto is smart to use as a campaign issue on either side. But the difference, yep. I think, I think your point is right because I think the Democrats, to the extent that they do use an anti crypto message, right? Elizabeth Warren's building an anti crypto army. She said. My guess is she's already got all the people that agree with that in her camp anyway. The Democrats aren't courting the middle by being anti-crypto. So I think yep. that's where I think that's where it is interesting on the Republican side that some some appear to be I, I think they think it can be a wedge issue for them with at least a, some segment of the voter base. Um, I don't think anyone's like turning away from uh, uh, I don't think anyone's coming to the Democratic Party because they're against Bitcoin to me in my view. But um, anyway, I agree. That's going to be interesting. Let's go on to AI. You're about to jump in there because, um, I mean, everyone's wondering, you know, what's the, well, you see a huge venture capitalist narrative shifting, right? It's like, oh my gosh, you know, open AI, Sam Altman's open AI launches chat GPT, which is basically available to everyone. What, when was that? Three or four months ago, maybe? November. Um, yes. Yeah, so, Same time uh, as FTX, actually. <laughs> perfect narrative. Yeah. Perfect, perfect timing. Yeah, uh-huh. Um, I've got it. I, I use it. I sometimes use it instead of Google, like just tell me the answer to this question. Um, you have to be careful. Sometimes you get incredibly wrong information out of it very confidently, but it's it's extremely powerful. I think that opened a lot of people's eyes. And then everyone I talk to in Silicon Valley is like, dude, it, it feels like the pitch decks on AI or AI adjacent companies is like the deluge we were seeing on crypto in like 2019, 2020. Um, so it's clearly a big shift, but it's a, it's a real shift, right? I mean, we, it's not just a narrative is this, this technology appears to really finally be advancing into a way that everyday people may be using it every day. Um, what, what's your broad take on AI generally before we try to connect it to crypto or anything like that? Yeah, no, I, I, so listen, you know, I, I, the way that I always frame the breakdown is that it was about big picture power shifts. And, you know, the one that I was exploring in the context of the breakdown was economic, uh, you know, economic power. And the sort of vantage point for that was Bitcoin and, and kind of crypto more broadly, because that was the piece of sort of this big picture power shift that I was I was most interested in. Um, I started a couple months ago, the AI breakdown, because, you know, uh, basically since ChatGPT, my big picture power shift-ometer has been going off the charts. And I, you know, listen, I remember 2018, 2019, when, you know, all of your crypto friends who were in LA, uh, you know, posted their LinkedIn message about how they were returning to their first love, which was the cannabis industry or whatever the fuck it was. (laughs) Um, You know, this is not that for people who are, like, it it has been um, the most obvious inflection point moment, I think, you know, in society you know the the the, the structure the technological structure of society that maybe we've seen in in our lifetimes in terms of it being so crystal clear that this is an unignorable force now that doesn't mean that the you know the vcs aren't going to turn it into incredible froth with things that are just going to be eaten alive you know um david sachs recently said that you know, it's the only segment of Silicon Valley that's still being invested on based on the dream versus the metrics. And I, I think that that's probably true. And, and that always leads to 
uh, you know, a whole a whole washout of losers. But I think that the core of uh, people aren't wrong. Like there, it's it wasn't accidental that it became the fastest growing startup in history. That 100 million people used ChatGPT in the first five weeks after it was released. That's Previous crazy. to that, TikTok was the fastest growing, and it was nine months. And even that's insane to get to to 100 million users. This is un- unlike things that we've seen. And I think that the reason that it's hitting people so hard is that it transparently has impacts that extend from every person individually in terms of how they're going to do their job, what job they're going to do, what that looks like in the future, to sort of this middle industrial level of our entire categories of jobs and industries going to be washed away or changed forever, to this massive society, you know, structure of society level with questions of, you know, existential risk and and where those, you know, industri- industrial and job, uh, you know, changes even, even without the X-risk question still become the biggest political issues of, of the time. And so, you know, this thing just that was theoretical became not theoretical, you know, almost overnight. And people are now racing to, to catch up and, and make sense of it. Uh, in a, in a way that is, I think, uh, you know, profound and 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 mostly very legitimate. And of course, like, you know, as part of that, you have all of the, you know, every, every character and every archetype that we've seen in crypto obviously flows in. You know, like the threader guys on Twitter and you know whatever. <laughs> like they're they're all they're all here. Yeah. But but it would be I, I think that the the temptation that some have to write it off because it reminds them of things that have been write-offable in the past would be a pretty big mistake. Yeah, I agree. It's it's already, um, I mean, even just that chat use case alone is so powerful. Yep. You know, you start to realize what else we can plug it into. So it, it does this, though, bring us into a post-truth world, not just in AI, but also in, uh, sorry, like in, in in AI writing, but think about like mid-journey, right? I use mid-journey, love mid-journey. It's my, I, I have chat with the mid-journey bot on Discord to make weird images, and they're incredible and yep. they're not there yet i think i can mostly tell but remember there was one that happened it was um was it a it was a donald trump jr like with an ar like in central park and like and then there was another one with donald trump being arrested by, by cops supposedly yep. and um you, you could tell if you looked at the hands they just didn't look right but otherwise it looked pretty damn close yeah um is there a world a role in particular like what, what's the intersect between crypto and block and blockchain and AI in your mind, if there is one at all? I think a lot of people are exploring exactly that. So I think that on, a, on an intuitive level, people understand that in a world where, in a world where you can't assume, in fact, your default assumption has to be that instead of things being real and prove it to me otherwise, that we're going to start to probably shift to assume that things are fake. And if not, prove it to me otherwise. And the prove it to me otherwise is where potentially a digital, you know, public ledger, a shared public ledger that is a ultimately a source of shared truth is becomes a really valuable construct. Now, I think that right now that conversation is pretty theoretical versus uh, you know, applied. It's it's we haven't yet seen the first AP photographer who's, you know, uh, uh, dropping, dropping their photos, uh, you know, in a, in an ordinal, right. To prove that they took them first or anything like that, mm-hmm. you know, but it, it, mm-hmm. it wouldn't surprise me if we see that in the next few months, um, or there's, you know, some protocol that's designed specifically to do that. You know, I, I think that there's going to be a huge amount of experimentation because again, it's, you know, we were talking about that, that, that the kind of clear, 
obviousness of, you know, maybe in a world where we don't really trust institutions, having a, having a money type thing that's non-institutional is valuable. In a world where, you know, everything can be faked so effortlessly, maybe having, you know, shared sources of truth that are uncorruptible or, or less corruptible or, you know, are, are valuable. And so I, for me, the level that it's intersected is so far that sort of, there's a, a clear connection point there, even if we are not sure exactly how it manifests yet. I also think that there are, you know, there are sort of um, pretty powerful questions that we're going to face around power structures and centralization versus decentralization. I think that in a lot of ways, a lot of AI points to stronger centralization. One in the fact that it, it appears or you, it would, you would be, you know, kind of reasonable to assume that, uh, you know, the only the only the people that can play at massive scale in terms of access to GPUs and access to large models and stuff, there, you know, there, there's value and power is going to accrue to them. Um, now we've also seen some counterpoints where, you know, a Google memo leaked a couple of weeks ago that basically suggested that open source was just kind of eating, eating the mm -hmm. lunch uh, of these guys. And so maybe it won't be like that, but, but I think that you, you know, on top of that, you also have, um, AI could create momentum for another extreme sort of power grab from a political level as well in terms of, you know, if, if an industry, if, if left to its own devices, technology would wipe out an entire industry that represents, you know, whatever, 3% of American adults, is the government going to allow that to happen? Or are they going to try to ban the technology for that use case? You know, th those are the types of questions that we're going to face. And I think where it gets complicated is that people who are not particularly interested in draconian control might be even more worried about what, you know, free unfettered, you know, AI does. And so it's, it's sort of, you know, I don't know, I feel like for a lot of folks, crypto will have felt not like they'll leave it, but it will have felt like a training ground for the types of things that we're going to deal with, with in AI world. It's going to get real serious. All right. Last question. I know we got to run. Um, you've been covering uh, the emergence of China and their interest in crypto in particular. Um, this is something that's near and dear to my heart because I've been loudly advocating for the United States to not only um, speed up a progressive framework for regula regulation, but go in the correct direction instead of shooting ourselves in the foot while the rest of the world appears to be moving in a, in a very, you know, accepting uh, um, direction for crypto. Again, not easy, but uh, regulatory frameworks that business can actually operate in with clarity, right, and rules that make sense. Um, just recently, just a, a sort of a, a recent headline on this, there, there was supposedly a Web3 white paper put out uh, by some part of the Chinese government. Um, you covered this. What did it say and what did it say to you? So this is one of the most unexpected shifts and you know realignments uh, around crypto, I think, of 2023. In fact, it would be my contender for the big, most important narrative of 2023 so far is sort of the withdrawal of the U.S. and the reemergence of, of China and the East more broadly as, as sort of a, a dominant force. Um, and, you know, the U.S. side of the story, I think, is well-trodden territory for, for anyone who's listening to this show. You know, post-FTX, Operation Chokepoint 2.0, even if you don't really believe in it's a coordinated effort, there's no doubt that the sort of disposition, posture, and stance of, you know, the institutions of power in the United States have pushed against it gone away from crypto. Now, in the meanwhile, it appears that China, who had effectively banned or, you know, kind of tried to ban everything about crypto in 2021, 
has recognized in that an uh, in that sort of withdrawal of the U.S. Uh, that the geopolitical stakes may have changed, and you know, far be it from uh, them to to lose out on that opportunity. There have been a couple places that this has come up. One is around Hong Kong regulations. Last year, uh, Hong Kong announced they would have new forthcoming crypto regulations. This was, again, around the time of FTX, maybe a little bit before, or maybe it was just after. But either I remember way, this. Yeah, it was yeah, shortly it, thereafter. It, it looked as though they were going to be headed for a bigger clampdown. Like it was expected that retail would not have a legal path to trade crypto at all in Hong Kong. Um, in March of this year, I think, uh, whatever, it, it, basically whatever month it was, March or April, they, it started to become, or it started to appear as though that was, it was actually going to go in a slightly different direction and that the, the regulations were going to be a lot more permissive. Then a few weeks ago, we actually got them and there are, uh, basically there is a path for retail uh, for for exchanges to offer services to retail. It's in a limited form. Uh, assets that they offer have to be listed on two or listed in two major indices. But then beyond that, once they are licensed, which by the way, no one has actually gotten the license quite yet, uh, they have a lot of latitude in in sort of determining processes to add new assets on. So the the point being that this is a Big, big shift from what people, what it, what it appeared and what they were signaling it was going to be like just seven months ago. So Hong Kong's one piece of it. A second piece of it is banking infrastructure. And this one is, it's not totally clear where, you know, uh, how much real versus narrative it is. But there were a lot of reports over the last couple of months that um, CCP officials were showing up at crypto meetups in Hong Kong and positively engaging with the community, not as a, like, not as a, I'm here to spy kind of way. I'm here <laughs> to like participate kind of way. And learn, yeah. So that's notable. Second, uh, Hong Kong was signaling more openness for crypto companies getting banking infrastructure up and running with them, including from Chinese state-sponsored banks who were, you know, going and doing pitches at, at, at uh, startup offices to, you know, ask them to, to create bank accounts. Now, again, it's a little unclear how you know, how real that was versus, uh, versus, you know, a Bloomberg article that everyone latched onto because it's a really interesting yeah. narrative. Um, but then the third piece is the one that you mentioned, this Web3 paper. So it was from Beijing's Municipal Science and Technology Commission. Uh, and um, it, it was, it's basically sort of a big look at uh, they, they call Web3 a part of sort of an inevitable set of trends around the metaverse and AI and all these sort of things. And, and it reads, you know, it's not just a crypto paper. It's sort of about a broader set of technologies. But it certainly reads as a, um, an invocation to get more, not less involved, right? They even go into depth around how different private companies in China, uh, ByteDance, uh, JD, Baidu could all sort of be involved in this and, and what they could do. And, you know, this is obviously, it's a small part of the Beijing apparatus. It's not like it's, you know, President Xi doing a speech about it or something like that. Mm -hmm. But this is China and it's not a system where this type of paper gets out unless it's allowed to get out. And, you know, what we don't know is to what extent this is signaling a shift versus being a test balloon versus, you know, just sort of uh, it, it actually being the people inside this Municipal Science and Technology Commission who someone higher above them said, 
Why not? Fine. You know, it's not it's not even a tacit uh, approval or a, or a or a test balloon. It's just a willingness to let it go forward. But either way, it's a hell of a lot different than two years ago when it was you know shut up and stop doing this or you'll get arrested. Right? It's a, it's yeah. a, a pretty remarkable a remarkable shift. So you know, I think that over the next few months we're going to have a lot better uh, picture of of how this all shakes out. Um, but it's certainly, I think that the overall trend line is pretty unignorable that, you know, if you look at, you know, kind of middle of last year to middle of this year in terms of where China and China's sphere of influence sit vis-a-vis crypto. And, you know, it's also what the U.S. organizations are are are, are, are kind of pushing, pushing back on, you know, Brian Armstrong wrote a whole big op-ed about exactly this. So it's it's interesting times for sure. Yeah, big shifts happening across a, a range of parts of the sector and the technology and, and global uh, technology sectors and across the world. Uh, Nathaniel Whittemore, our guest, thank you so much. Uh, listen to Nathaniel on the breakdown, the AI and the AI breakdown pod. Follow Nathaniel at NLW on Twitter. Great follow, uh, Nate. Great to see you, man. Thank you so much. Cheers. Good to be here. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Galaxy Brains. Thank you to our guest, Nathaniel Whittemore, also known as NLW, at NLW on Twitter. Uh, Great conversation with him. And, of course, our friend Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Trading. I'll be back in the studio next week. Uh, And until then, have a great weekend. I'll see you then. Thanks for listening to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. If you enjoy the show, please like, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To follow Galaxy Research, sign up for our weekly newsletter at gdr.email, read our content at galaxy.com research, and follow us on Twitter at glxyresearch. See you next week.